we are reading from Malachi 3, 13 through 4, 3. So, you have spoken arrogantly against me, says the Lord. Yet you ask, what have we said against you? You have said it is futile to serve God. What do we gain by carrying out his requirements and going about like mourners before the Lord Almighty? But now we call the arrogant blessed. Certainly evildoers prosper, and even when they put God to the test, they get away with it. Then those who feared the Lord talked with each other, and the Lord listened and heard. A scroll of remembrance was written in his presence concerning those who feared the Lord and honored his name. On the day when I act, says the Lord Almighty, they will be my treasured possession. I will spare them just as a father has compassion and spares his son who serves him. And you will again see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between those who serve God and those who do not. Chapter 4, verse 1. Surely the day is coming, it will burn like a furnace. All the arrogant and every evildoer will be stubble. And the day that is coming will set them on fire, says the Lord Almighty. Not a root or branch will be left to them. But for you who revere my name, the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings. And you will go out and frolic like well-fed cats. Then you will trample on the wicked. They will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord Almighty. May God bless the reading of this word. Thank you, Ann. So we return to the book of Malachi. We'll be in Malachi this week and next. And then I'm uh, looking forward to in November, we're going to begin studying the book of Hebrews. Um, you know, early uh, in ministry, um, there was a, a couple. And in some ways, they... Uh, looked like they had it all together, neat, neat kids, nice home, dedicated, serving the Lord, extremely gifted. Um, they had also, you know, put in their lives what they thought were principles, that if we do these principles, if we obey these biblical principles, then, you know, God's going to bless our home. Uh, sadly, over a series of months, some hidden sin was exposed. Uh, their marriage began to unravel, divorce proceedings begun. And I remember in the middle of that season having conversations um, and, and, and the wife saying things like, Matt, you know, I've, I've done everything. I've done everything for my family. I've done everything for my husband. I've done everything for my kids. But it's not working. It doesn't seem worth it. Now, it's not the first time someone has felt that sense of disappointment. Not the first time that someone has, you know, questioned, does it work? Does Christianity work? Does God work? But I mean, that's the subject matter to, to which Malachi is addressing 
here in chapter 3 and into chapter 4. It's, it's a sermon of sorts that he has, you'll notice, there's kind of two sets of people that are being addressed, two communities, so to speak, one message that is for both of them. So what I'd like you to imagine is you show up at church, an Old Testament church, and it's Malachi the preacher, and you have to imagine that Malachi is talking because he has some magic Holy Spirit abilities that I don't have. But he knows the hearts, intentions, and motivations of these two different communities. So you have like small group A and small group B, and they're probably sitting beside each other in the synagogue. That always seems to happen. So small group A, small group B, and he is preaching a 5th century B.C. sermon to these people. And what we're going to see is heaven hears what goes on in the machinations of small group A. And God sees the faith of small group B. And then the final word in Hebrews 4 is a reminder that heaven is waiting. Heaven is waiting. So look with me at how he addresses small group A. (laughs) You have spoken arrogantly against me, says the Lord. And then you ask, what have we said against you? Malachi says, you've said this. It's futile to serve God. What do we gain by carrying out his requirements? Going about like mourning before the Lord Almighty. Now we call the arrogant blessed. Certainly evildoers prosper. Even when they put God to the test, they get away with it. On that probably Saturday morning, because it was the Jewish Sabbath, preacher Malachi says, heaven is hearing the scorn of a group of people I'd like to call the religious pragmatists. It means to be pragmatic, you, you do things that work, you be practical. But they're gathering in their little small group, and they're saying, this ain't working. Notice where they have their, where they're giving their attention, where what their eyes are upon. First on, they have their eyes on the payoff. Do you see what they feel about the payoff? Verse fourteen: It's futile to serve God. What do we gain by carrying out His requirements? They're looking at the payoff and they're saying, "This is not paying it off. We've prayed, we haven't been blessed. We've obeyed, and the storehouse of heaven has not sent down a jackpot." futile it's worthless vain in many ways they're they're like mercenaries you know what a mercenary is someone who fights for pay right a loyal u.s soldier she fights to defend the rights and freedoms of her country a mercenary does it for a paycheck that's what they're saying where's my paycheck There's no gain. There's no gain in trusting God. There's no gain in obeying God. There's no gain in honoring him, giving to him, serving him, listening, worshiping, praising. It's not working. Notice also it says they have the eyes on others. They're looking. It says they look at, they see this group of people that they're they're saying, oh, these evildoers, they're prospering. The arrogant, they're blessed. They're religious scorekeepers. 
And they're trying to throw a flag on the heavenly God, the referee, saying, he doesn't know what he's doing. Even these people, they're testing God. And they still get away with it. So they have their eyes on the paycheck. They have their eyes on others. They're keeping score. Notice it doesn't seem like they have any eyes on themselves. They don't seem to have any eye on God. Makes me think of a story that uh, Charles Spurgeon told many years ago. Maybe you've heard this before. Spurgeon writes, Once upon a time there was a king who ruled a vast kingdom. One day there was a gardener who grew an enormous carrot, and he took it to the king and said, My lord, this is the greatest carrot I've ever grown, or will ever grow. Therefore, I want to present it to you as a token of my love and respect to you. The king was touched and discerned the man's heart, and so he turned. As the man turned to go, the king said, Wait, you are clearly a good steward of the earth. I want to give you a plot of land to you freely as a gift, so you can garden it all. The gardener was amazed and delighted, went home rejoicing. But there was a nobleman in the king's court, and he overheard the blessing the king gave for the gifts of the carrot. And he said to himself, my, if that is what you get for a carrot, what if you gave the king something better? So the next day, the nobleman came before the king and was leading a handsome black stallion. He bowed low and said, my lord, I breed horses. And this is the greatest horse I've ever had or ever will have. Therefore, I want to present it to you as a token of my love and respect for you. But the king discerned his heart and said, Thank you. Took the horse and simply dismissed the nobleman. The nobleman was perplexed. And the king said, Let me explain. That gardener was giving me the carrot but you were giving yourself the horse. The king discerned this mercenary nobleman. In many ways, that's what Malachi is discerning in this first little group of people. They're talking, they're complaining, they're keeping score. And he says, you're a religious mercenary. You're a religious pragmatist, and when things aren't paying off, you're ready to bail. You're ready to go. Can I just ask, just where is your heart personally on this? You know, can you say like, Paul, or like Job, right? The Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Are you trusting God because he is good, or are you following God only if he gives good gifts? But let's, let's, let's just talk a little bit about what kind of company do you keep? What is the kind of conversations with the Christians that you gather with? Is it complaining? Is it scorekeeping? Is it blaming? Is it doubting? You know, when you gather, what, what is going on that gathering? If a, a non-Christian looked in, would they walk away going, man, they believe in a good God, even amidst the worst of circumstances? Or are they like, well, their God doesn't pay out any better than mine? God hears the scorn of religious scorekeepers, of the religious pragmatists, of the religious mercenaries. But notice how the tone changes 
in verse 16. It's a totally different group of people gathering. It's a totally different attitude coming from heaven. And what Malachi is saying, heaven, heaven sees the faith of those who reverently fear my name. Look at verse 16 where it says, it says, then those who feared the Lord, they talked with each other, and the Lord listened and heard. And then it says, a scroll of remembrance was written in his presence concerning those who feared the Lord and honored his name. So heaven heard the scorners, but now heaven sees the faithful. I see you. I see you when you gather and you encourage a brother. Hold on to Christ. Don't give up. Your labors in the Lord are not in vain. You will receive a harvest if you do not give up. Did you catch what it says about heaven? It says he, they, he rolls out a scroll of remembrance and he writes it down. I mean, it's not because God is forgetful, right? He doesn't need a, a legal pad. But it's this image of God sees the faith and he, he sees those communities. Of faith. I love that picture. It says they met together they figure, and they talk to each other. Hold on, brother. Hold on, sister. And heaven is smiling, and let, let's record this. This is, this is faithful. And one of my hobbies is I read church history, and you just read of the roller coaster of history. I mean, um, some of you guys are familiar with the, the first great awakening in the middle of the 1700s. It was this high point when the gospel went out, and people were believing. But if you just fall back 50 years to 1700, no one was going to church. Gambling, prostitution, drunkenness was just going crazy in England and in the colonies. And so you never, we never know where we are in the ebb and flow of God's history. True of our own personal life. We, we never quite know where we are. And so God wants you to know that heaven sees your faith. He sees when you, when you hug a sister in the foyer and you just weep together and you say, let's just pray and ask God for patience. He, he rejoices when you chase down that brother who hasn't been to church because he's so discouraged with what the church has been doing and what Christians have done. And you chase him down and say, I love you. God loves you. Hold on. Heaven says, write that down. Again, I, I don't think this is written down for, for God's sake. He's going to remember. I mean, it's written down for our sake. It says, when those who trust in Christ, we're going to stand before the Lamb. I think there'll be, I think sometimes we get really scared about that. Oh man, this is going to be a rough deal here. Hey, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Some of those moments before the Lamb, it's going to be, you remember, I saw you pray that day. You barely got a word out because you were crying the whole time. But I saw that. Writes it down. He's, he hears the scorn, sees the faith, that hold on to his name. Verse 17 says, On the day when I act, says the Lord Almighty, they will be my treasured possession. I will spare them just as a father has compassion and spares his son who serves him. 
in heaven. He says, someday, it's all going to be it's all going to be seen. You're my treasured possession. She's my gem. He's my ruby. Right? Why does he do that? It says because he loves us as a father loves his son, as a as a as a mother loves her daughter. Right? Loves, wants to spare. It says in uh, Lamentations, like he doesn't willingly afflict us. Like this, he's not up here like you know holding us like we're little voodoo dolls, right? He has a purpose even for our affliction. He doesn't do it willingly, but he wants. He is intending and will spare his children on that day. He sees. He hears. So again, just at a personal level, I just want to remind you: God sees you when you hold on in faith even when it's hard. He sees that. It's pleasing to him. In Hebrews eleven six. it says you actually can't please God without that kind of faith that trusts him and trusts that he's eagerly going to bless those who fear his name. So he sees you. But again, let me just encourage you, think about the, the, the Christian communities that you're a part of, the small group that you go to. Is it a place where you're encouraging one another to keep fearing the Lord, to trust him, to to believe his promises. Do you, when you go to small group, do you think, how can I encourage this person? Oh, I heard, and they were sharing last week about this trouble. I want to ask, how are they holding on to Christ in that? I don't know what your prayer list looked like, but my prayer list doesn't change much. It's the same concerns. It's the same burdens. It's the same people I hope trust Jesus. It's the same people I hope come back to Jesus. It's the same sin that I've been struggling with for 30 years. It can get discouraging. You get discouraged? Don't you wish your prayer list was like different names, different struggles? It's the same list. And it is for your brothers and sisters. So just encourage them as they wade through those struggles. Galatians 6, 2 talks about carry one another's burdens, and in this way you fulfill the law of Christ, the law of love. God sees the honor of the God-fearing remnant. God hears the scorn of those religious scorekeepers. But in this last section, from that last verse in 3 to the first three verses in 4, Malachi does say there is an answer coming. There's an answer to the scorners. There's an answer to the faithful. The answer goes like this, verse 18. You will again see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between those who serve God and those who do not. Surely the day is coming. It will burn like a furnace. All the arrogant and every evildoer will be stubble. And the day that is coming will set them on fire, says the Lord Almighty. Not a root or a branch will be left to them. But for you who revere my name, the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its rays. And you will go out and frolic like well-fed calves. That might be a tough metaphor for some of the women in this room. You're going to be like dancing bovines. Verse 3 says, But then you, you will trample on the wicked. It will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day that I act, says the Lord Almighty. So heaven hears, heaven sees, heaven waits right now. Do you see what Malachi is saying? There is a day 
a day that is coming. It is certain, but it is not now. Heaven is waiting. Waiting for the final sentencing that comes at the day of the Lord. It's coming. Now, that last verse in chapter 3 says something that, you know, this is something that I have to encourage myself with and want to encourage you with, is that it says, and you will again see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between those who serve God and those who do not. That idea of you will see the distinction again is that all throughout history, God has taken moments to show the distinction between who are his people protected and blessed and those who are not his people, those who have rebelled will be under judgment. So you have a distinction, right? There's a distinction between the Hebrew people and the Egypt people, Egyptian people. There was distinctions in the plagues. There was a distinction in the one safely made it through the Red Sea. Another was annihilated by the same sea. A distinction was made. There was a, a distinction between David and Goliath. The mighty one who thought that he could scoff against God and the little shepherd boy who trusted his God. There was a distinction in the past and there'll be a distinction again. There was a distinction in the book of Esther. This woman, basically in a form of sex slavery, Esther, weak, controlled by a king, but she stepped out in faith and the evil, powerful Haman hung from the same noose that he had raised for someone else to die. God will make a distinction again. God made a distinction in the early church. Stephen, the first martyr. Remember what Jesus does as he's being stoned? He stands up in heaven and says, well done. That's my gem. I see you, Stephen. Chapter later, King Herod thought he was pr too proud to give glory to God, and he died. The martyr prays, the king killed. I will make a distinction again. Reading through the book of Isaiah, Sennacherib, this mighty king, threatens Jerusalem. You're going down. Hezekiah believes in faith. Sennacherib killed by his sons. Hezekiah lives to a good old ripe age. God makes a distinction. Now, obviously, all these move forward to the culmination, the greatest distinction, right, is when the Son of God lived the perfect life, died this substitutionary death, and then he rose again vindicated. This is my Son. God says, I am pleased with him. The Roman satyrian who killed him said, surely this is the Son of God. God says, I'm going to make a distinction again. Now, all those who it says who trust in this God, who trust in Jesus Christ, who hold on to the promises even in the hard days, you will share in that final distinction. This is my son. This is my daughter. Well done. Good and faithful servant. But there's also a distinction made, a sentence already set for those who do not repent, those who do not trust, those who do not fear the name. Again, it seems like Malachi's message was to two people, a part of the Israelite community, right? Small group A and small group B both seem to be a part of the professing community of faith. I'm praying that small group A in the 5th century BC repented, that they saw their scorn and their doubting of God and repented. But if they did not, I would suspect they shared a similar journey as 
those who were to die. Look at where the description. This is heavy on what God plans at the end of time. It is disturbing. Um, it's, it, it's disturbing, but it's a kindness to be honest about the fate of those who don't trust God. This is a mercy for God to say those who don't see the goodness and the mercy of the Lord will be punished. This is a gift. Uh, talking about lethal injection and the electric chair, those are disturbing images. And yet they are supposed to grab our attention and be like, not me, I don't want to go that way. Malachi says there's a day coming. It will burn like a furnace. All the arrogant and every evildoer will be stubble. By the way, arrogant and evildoer, those are the same words that dis- were described in chapter 3 that, they, that the scorners thought they were getting away with murder. They're, the same n- terms are used again. No, they're, they're, eventually they will be stubble. How complete will be their judgment? Well, it'll be so complete, um, it says not a root or a branch shall be left to them. This is, that's a... You know, that's a soup to nuts kind of statement. From the lowest root of the tree to the, 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 the farthest branch of the tree, there will be total and complete fitting judgment. Know for sure that God never judges uh, beyond what is right and fitting, but he never does less either. And so those who stay in rebellion will experience the full judgment of God. Jump down to verse 3. It says that one day there's a sense in which the righteous will trample on the wicked. Right? That those who have been uh, beat down for their faith will one day stand over the wicked. Now, I think these are really tough images for most Westerners. Like, there's a sense in which I, I feel a little uncomfortable to think that my kind atheist neighbor will be ashes under my feet someday. Like that's, that is a tough image. Um, one of the ways for me to deal with just the old image is, one, obviously it's the first room that God is perfectly just, but second also is to think about the persecuted church all around the world. Right? The Christians who have been killed, the, their crosses urinated upon, their tombs dug out, their children killed, raped, put into slavery, Right? What, is ha- what they see with their physical eyes, the evil and the hatred against God and his people, what they see every day of their lives, what I want you to know is God sees in the truth of every wicked person. We don't see it. Jim seems nice and Julie sure is sweet. But God knows the heart. And that's probably why we leave judgment to God and this is why it is inappropriate for you to damn someone with your lips. Right? What we do is we hold out the hope of the gospel. If you believe, you're spared. And also, one of the reasons why we need to see and meditate on the kind of the heaviness of judgment is it actually makes the cross even more beautiful. This is what our Savior took for his people. This is what was going on when he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is why he knelt in the Garden of Gethsemane and said, there's any way that this cup could pass. Not my will, but yours be done. This is what Jesus endured for his children. This is what he endured to any and all who will come to him in faith and say, I don't deserve it. I deserve the exact same thing as every one of my neighbors. My heart has been just as proud, just as scornful. 
forgive me. The great promise of the gospel is Jesus says, all who come to me, he said he will not cast away. This is his great mercy. And this is also why it is a, one of the most worst things to scorn the cross, to ignore the cross, to reject the cross. What a gift of mercy and to say, no, not for me. Heaven waits for the final sentencing, but it is coming. You know, I have to, you know, if you read a little bit of just kind of history in England, like most people were scared to death from about 1939 to about 1943. They were pretty sure Hitler was going to take over all of Europe. Germany couldn't be stopped. Whatever land he touched, he took. If you've ever seen the images of the bombings in, London's, in London, just the, the fear and how petrified the people were, he is going to win. This madman is going to win. And if you would have made your judgment between 1939 and 1943, you would say, hey, the evildoers, they prosper. The wicked flaunt God and get away with it. And you just flash forward 180 days, and you have this scared madman taking his own life. He's this small, weakling person who, he, he raged against God, and God put him in his place. Heaven waits. He makes distinctions in different times in history. And so, brothers and sisters, I want to encourage you to remind one another of where the distinctions that have been made and the distinctions that will be made. Right? God wants us to know these truths about what's happened in history and what will happen in history. I also just want to encourage you, um, kind of based on this image, <laughs> right? don't do Christianity alone. Don't do Christianity alone. You, I'll put it this way. We can't do Christianity alone. Hebrews 3, 13, you know, we need to encourage one another as long as it's called today. What day is today? Today. Encourage one another as long as it's called today so that your heart does not grow hard because of sin's deceitfulness. Christians who go alone rarely make it. But Christians who have the kind of community where they come and get you and encourage you and hold you and pray with you and cry with you, they endure. The church is one of God's greatest gifts, one of his greatest means to help you press on in faith. Find a community. Also work hard to create the kind of community where you are encouraging faith and fearing the Lord. One overall principle that I see from this is just the idea that God takes note. Right? Like God takes note. He hears and he sees, but God's taking note. Uh, a number of years ago, I had this problem in the house I was living in that the, my basement flooded and this egress window was just this problem and uh, started flooding. And I was getting really nervous because there was this big rainstorm coming and we were getting ready to go on vacation. And I just thought, I have to do it. If I'm going to be able to go on vacation and not be crazy, I got to lay drainage tile. And I had to lay drainage tile, you know, three or four feet deep for about 60 feet. And that's not a good place to be. And I was nervous. I was figuring, how in the world am I going to do this? And so I get my shovel. I get my drainage tile. And then people just start showing up. Gordon showed up. And this guy named Drew and his kids showed up. Dave. 
I think Tony was there. People I didn't even know showed up. And uh, we dug this trench. People I've long forgotten were there. And the one thing I just walked away going, I was in a lot of trouble, except there was a woman in this church who was taking note. She was taking note of my fears and my problem. And so she used the arsenal of her network to deal with my need. Here's the thing. God is taking note from heaven. And he has the arsenal at his hand to care for us in our time of need. He can sustain us when he chooses not to show up in the way that we're exactly asking for him to show up. And then one day all things will be set right. So brother and sister, God is taking note. Heaven takes note and in time when he arrives there will, there will, leave, there will be no doubts. But now we press on in faith. Let me pray for us. Lord, I pray that this church family, uh, collectively, but also as it's, you know, there's different small groups and different Christian friendships together, Lord, I pray that we would hold on to Christ together. We'd cling to the faith together. For my brother or sister today that has their doubts and their scorns, Lord, would you minister to them and remind them that God does show up, God has shown up. Thank you, Jesus, for just displaying that the life of, of sorrow, suffering, and even death is never the last word for the people of God. Jesus, you rose again, and you promised that all those who trust in you will rise again. And Lord, thank you that you're taking note, taking note on our hardest days. We trust you, and yet we pray as the man did before you in your presence. We believe, help our unbelief. Walk with us, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.